As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me today to talk about some Americans in action this past weekend is a man who, in honor of a player we're going to be discussing later today, has decided to change his name. So I am joined by Joseph De La Lowry. Joe, congrats on the name change. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taylor. It really means a lot to me. I'm working on getting all my business cards changed as oh, we boy. speak. It's quite a process, Taylor, let me tell you. I didn't think about that. Like when you have to change, like when your debit card expires and you have to get a new one and you have to update all your accounts. I didn't think about having to change your name on the debit card and then change all your accounts. Wow. It's a whole process, Joe, but I appreciate your dedication to sound like Luca De La Torre. Oh, of course. No, it's, it's been taking me like quite a lot of time, but I'm very committed to this bit. And at this point, it's, it's almost consuming me, which might not be the best thing. But here we are, and I don't really have many regrets. I feel like new listeners might think you're actually being serious. And maybe you are. <laughs> uh, so we don't want to take up too much more of Joe's time since he is spending so much of it uh, with the name change process. But we are going to talk about some Americans in action, some in more detail than others. Uh, we stumbled upon the format of some quick hits and then some longer analysis last week. We're going to keep that going. Joe, let's do the the Tuesday Americans in Action Roundup quick hits, starting with Serginho Dest. Uh, we talked about him yesterday in the full review, the weekend review. He started at right wing in El Clasico, which Barcelona lost 2-1. to one. He moved to fullback in the second half, got a late assist from that position. So, Joe, are we ready to see Dest stay at fullback for now? Yes, I am. And we talked about this last week, right? And there are some things we didn't get into that I saw floating around on Twitter that I thought were really good points. Adam Bells in particular tweeted out about how he doesn't want to see Dest as a winger because it takes away from some of the things that Dest provides in build-up when he's deeper in build-up. I thought that was a great point. It also detracts from the more talented position, although a a position in winger that is a little bit dinged up right now for the U.S. men's national team. But it takes even an Aronson or a Wea potentially off the field in favor of adding on a player like Shaq Moore or DeAndre Edlin. Or last week we were talking about Joe Scally, which I still wouldn't be opposed to seeing Joe Scally. But still, some good points being, being tossed around there. And I think Dest is probably better suited at right back. 
Yeah, I feel like uh, the soccer gods heard me last week talking about how Scali can play fullback. That can push Dest to wing. And then we have Timothy West starting as one of the main strikers for Lille. So he could maybe try the number nine spot. So we get a little bit more number nine depth. And instead we have Scali still playing fullback, but Dest returning to fullback and Timothy Weah starting on the right side <laughs> for Lille in sort of a 4-4-2. So maybe it won't be Tim Weah at the nine. Maybe it won't be Serginho Dest at right wing. But it was Serginho Dest with the assist and that miss that we don't need to talk too much more more about wait, Joe wait. anything else uh on desk from this weekend yeah I do want to talk about that miss just oh, for a boy. second because nah, right. I've seen people saying that this was a sitter from Serginho Dest and it was like a Fernando Torres-esque wild miss and it was it was an unfortunate miss in an unfortunate situation that goal that Dest or that shot that Dest had if he put it in the back of the net it would have been one nil to Barcelona at that point and that would have been a turning point in the game but it, it wasn't a sitter. I guess I don't really know what the definition of that is, but it certainly wasn't a tap-in, right? The XG, according to FOTMOB, 0.34, right? So there's a, a 33% chance, based on statistical data from the past, that Dest was going to score that. In my mind, that's not really a sitter. And I think a general rule of thumb that I try to abide by is shooting a soccer ball is always a little bit harder than we sitting on our couches think it is. So I don't know. I just wanted to add that little desk nugget in there because, yes, it was a, a poor miss and a poor moment, but it was not, you know, this incredible missed opportunity for Serginho Dest. I mean, it, I would say it was a missed opportunity because he should have at the very least hit the frame, but I take your point that it wasn't quite as cut and dry as maybe people would have you believe, especially the commentators who I think framed it as Ansu Fati setting up Serginho Dest and then Dest wasn't able to put it on frame when in reality from my notes from my memory it's it's Memphis Depay with a great run he plays it in and Fati redirects and then Dest is reacting to the redirection and is able to get his footing right to then get the shot off he just doesn't frame it properly and ends up putting it over so still should have done better but I take your point that it wasn't this uh, I will forever think of Diego Forlan uh, when he was playing for Man United as the sort of sitter from like a yard out and he managed to pass it <laughs> wide. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't particularly great either. Nor was maybe the result for Hoffenheim, who lost 4-0 to Bayern Munich. Chris Richards starting uh, at left center back in a back three there. Hoffenheim currently sits 11th in the table, but given that Bayern has in its last seven games won by scorelines of 4-0, 4-0, 5-1, 5-0, and 7-0, maybe we can withhold judgment, Joe. Yeah, I don't think you can really blame anyone in the Bundesliga or nah. maybe in global soccer outside of a few <laughs> clubs for losing 4-0 to Bayern Munich. They are nah. on an absolute tear right now domestically and in the Champions League. Taylor, I went back through and watched Bayern's goals in this game to try and figure out if Richards was at fault for any of them. And this is a very narrow way to look at this game and, and assign blame or credit That's to fun. anyone. But there are a couple of moments here where, where Richards could have done better, and we've seen him do better in the past. Byron's first goal comes from Serge Gnabry, and Richards goes to close the ball down. Gnabry's on the right side of the box for Byron, the left side for Hoffenheim. And Richards goes over to close the ball down, and he's kind of going cautiously to try to cut off Gnabry's ability to shift to his left foot. Richards is right. And I think that that lack of speed as Richards is closing down the ball gives Gnabry a little extra moment to shoot, and he beats Hoffenheim's keeper at the near post towards the, the middle of the goal. So not horrible defending there. I can see the logic from Richards in that moment, but maybe should have closed the ball down a bit quicker. The second goal, Taylor, it's a 2v2 break for Bayern with Lewandowski and Thomas Muller on Richards and uh, another defensive teammate of his. It's a 2v2, and Richards can't win the ball from Thomas Muller. The ball eventually pokes free to Lewandowski, who shoots and scores a, a, an improbable but beautiful shot 
from outside the box. You could assign Richards some blame there for not winning the ball from Thomas Muller sooner. The third goal, corner kick, not Richards' man, not really his area, not his fault. Fourth goal, long ball over the top from Upamecano that finds Kingsley Coleman for the finish. Not really Richards' responsibility either. So some some not perfect moments there from Chris Richards. Not a horrible showing on any one of those goals in particular, but certainly some things to keep an eye on going forward. Did you see any positives or anything you did like, or were you mostly just focused on the goals scored slash conceded, depending on your perspective? I was mostly focused on the goals slash conceded, gotcha. but there are some some even nice moments in there, right? You can see a little bit of Richard's recovery speed and his defensive awareness, even if all the pieces aren't quite together yet. So again, Richard's very talented soccer player. I think the most talented center back the U.S. has right now. But seeing some of these moments where he maybe doesn't close the ball down quite quick enough or doesn't win the ball quite quick enough, those are things that I think he can improve as as time goes on. Uh, so from one uh, American uh, center back to another playing in the Bundesliga, let's talk John Brooks. Started but subbed out uh, in the 88th minute in Wolfsburg's 2-0 loss to Freiburg. I'm going to assume that substitution was more about tactics and getting some attackers on to chase the game late. That said, Brooks was the lowest rated outfield starter of anybody for Wolfsburg. I'm feeling a little bit apprehensive, Joe, about this ongoing situation. It does continue to feel like John Brooks is not sort of turning it around, having those stabilizing games that allow him to find that confidence. Well, and this is going to be an interesting turning point for Wolfsburg Mm -hmm. because they fired their coach, Mark Van Brommel, after this game. Wolfsburg started the Bundesliga season with four consecutive wins. They were at the top of the table, or at least near there as the season went on. And then they drew one game. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. And then they lost four straight, right? And that is the the straw that broke the Campbell's back in this case, and the Campbell is Mark Van Brommel. So Wolfsburg at this point are ninth in the Bundesliga table. They're last in their Champions League group. They're at a bit of a turning point, right? And this could turn to be a good thing for John Brooks, and maybe this will be an opportunity for him to impress a new coach and really be a fixture of that back line. Or it could be a challenging time for him as he tries to fight for minutes under a new manager. I think he's going to be fine in terms of playing time, health permitting. But things are not all rosy for John Brooks and Wolfsburg right now. No. Uh, Mark Van Bommel is the player who was on that list of like players you think have gotten way more red cards than they ever actually did. But <laughs> yeah. interesting that he was shown a red card by Wolfsburg after this game. Let's go positive in Bundesliga, Joe. Jesse Marsh and Leipzig with a 4-1 win over Grutha Firth with Tyler Adams subbing on in the second half. I think he got a little bit of a rest after the Champions League midweek. Leipzig have now taken 11 points from a possible 15 in their last five Bundesliga games. They also ran PSG fairly close uh, last week. It does feel to me like Jesse Marsh is starting to stabilize things, contrasting that with what we just talked about with John Brooks. I feel more positive about Leipzig under Jesse Marsh. As do I. Leipzig are up to sixth in the table right now in the Bundesliga. They're only three points out of Champions League spots, Taylor. They're three points outside of fourth, and that's not exactly where they want to be, but it's not too far off of where we could reasonably expect them to be. They're seeing, we're seeing some good play on the field for Leipzig. We certainly saw that in the Champions League against PSG, where in, in large part, or at least in certain respects, they were the better team in that game. So there's certainly positives here for Leipzig and for Jesse Marsh and Tyler Adams and seeing a win like this in the league to hopefully create some momentum going into the the still congested fixture list in October and November. It's a good thing. So Leipzig, not too far off where they want to be. I would say the same is not the case for Norwich, who lost 7-0 on the weekend to Chelsea. Josh Sargent involved there, obviously did not get on the score. She did get featured in in a David Squires cartoon for The Guardian, which is always exciting even if it featured Sargent accidentally being left on the train (laughs) as though he were maybe surplus. I'm not quite sure. Uh, Joe, 
This also feels like maybe it's not going to work out to be the best move Josh Sargent could have made away from Werder Bremen. Nope. I don't know what the right call would have been at that point, but hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe even yeah. foresight was twenty twenty on this one. This move has not gone well for Josh Sargent, losing by a touchdown and an extra point to Chelsea. Yeah. Not a good thing for Norwich. Uh-huh. He left the game in the 69th minute with his team down 5-0. He's not getting a ton of chances to operate in the box in a U.S. men's national team possession-like structure, or even in a well-executed counterattacking structure, which we've also seen from the U.S. against teams like Mexico, um, the higher-level opposition that the U.S. have faced. He's not really getting many of those chances. And like we talked about last week, Taylor, when he is, he's not converting them and not causing opposing defenses really much issue at all in those spots. So things are not going well for Josh Sargent and the scoreline of this game against Chelsea certainly shows that. And if Norwich were to be relegated, a club that could possibly take their spot would be Fulham, who are back in the uh, automatic promotion places. They're now in second in the table, four wins from their last five. Anthony Robinson, Tim Ream, both starting in that 4-0 win over Nottingham Forest. So some positives for Americans in England. Joe, uh, there are some injury reports, however, we should probably uh, get through as well. Gianluca luc Busio started, subbed out at halftime in a 3-1 loss to Sassuolo. Have you heard anything about uh, what might be the issue there? Uh, Venet- I don't know exactly what the injury was, but Venezia tweeted out that he is available for their next game. So he appears to be fine or at least well on his way to recovery. All right. What about Matthew Hoppy, who was not in the squad for Mallorca, seems to be carrying an injury? Yeah, the only thing I could find about Matthew Hoppy was in Brian Shredda's piece for American Soccer Now, where Shredda just wrote that reportedly Hoppy was dealing with a little bit of an injury. I don't know what the status of that injury is. I could not find that on my own. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Hoppy hasn't been in the squad for Mallorca for their last two La Liga games. Before that, he was on the bench, didn't see the field in the previous two games. So I don't know if the injury was even bothering him then. I highly doubt that, given that I believe there was a U.S. men's national team camp and appearance in between those two things. So there have been some nice moments moments early on in Hoppy's tenure at Mallorca. It's still incredibly early in a general sense. We'll see where things go from here, Taylor. And in terms of our goal-scoring options in the next World Cup qualifying break, Ricardo Pepe returning from injury, uh, the same not the case for Gio Reyna or Christian Pulisic, who are still not training, and now we can add Giassi Zardes to the injury list. Yes, we can, Taylor. He suffered an MCL sprain in a 1-1 draw with Nashville SC last Wednesday. He's out two to four weeks, reportedly could miss the USMNT's November window, which is not ideal. Ricardo Pepe should be able to to play in those games, but the striker depth is looking a little thin, at least in terms of guys who are playing and excelling for their clubs. Joe DK has been playing for Orlando City. He's gotten a couple of goals in the last month or so. He's not looking incredibly sharp to my eye. Uh, you've got Jordan Pifok in Switzerland as an option. Josh Sargent we've talked about certainly a lot last week and, and a little bit already today. Probably not the best option at this point. There's not a ton of depth at that spot right now, Taylor. Uh, and then we had Joe Scali start for Gladbach in a 1-0 loss to Hertha Berlin. Timothy Way, as I mentioned, starting for Lille in a 1-1 draw. Joe, any other Americans we should mention on the quick hits portion of this episode? There's a lot that we didn't get to and mm-hmm. we're, not be able, we're not going to be able to get to them all, which I think is kind of what I wanted to hit at. Taylor, every once in a while, I'm just reminded of the state yeah. of the pool. And it's not mm-hmm. where... It could be, and it's not where it will be five or ten years from now, but it is encouraging to go through and try to type up an entire exhaustive list of these players. And for me, just sort of to give up and realize we're not going to have time to get to them all, it's a, it's a pretty good place to be, Taylor Rockwell. I think it, I think it definitely is. Uh, <laughs> okay. Where we will be next is talking about some players in more depth, but right now we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Not that you ever left us. Joe, I want to have some more detailed conversations about two players, one of whom we've seen recently, one of whom we have not. We're going to talk Luca De La Torre, your future namesake, and Matt Miazga. <laughs> Let's start with Matt Miazga, because that is a name uh, that I thought would be heavily involved with the U.S. national team going forward for the for a good long while, and yet we have not seen him in either camp, in either round of World Cup qualifying so far. Um, I don't think we've heard a ton about why that is the case. You and I haven't really talked about it, aside from noting, like, oh yeah, Matt Miazga's not there. That's weird. And then not really being able to spend time figuring out why that might be the case. So we watched him this weekend in a 2-0 win for Leganes over Cadiz. Uh, Joe, your overall thoughts from what you saw from Matt Miazga. Uh, he was okay, I think, sort of. Uh, Mm -hmm. some, some bad moments defensively, which I'm certainly going to talk about. I think we'll get to those in a minute. Some, some nice moments on the ball and some, and some moments defensively, especially when the ball was in the air that make you realize why a team towards the bottom of the La Liga table that doesn't average a lot of possession would want a player with a profile like Matt Miazga, but it was not his best performance, Taylor. Let me ask you this then, and it's a one-game sample size, at least for me it is, I'm assuming for you. I asked multiple people whose opinion I respect when it comes to the U.S. national team or who report on the U.S. national team, what might be the case with Matt Miazga if they've heard anything about injuries or about like how he doesn't fit the system, and there hasn't been a ton. There's been some speculation. So I wanted to watch this game and see if I could sort of pinpoint some things that maybe Burhalter might not like in his game or some sure. deficiencies that need to be cleaned up, and I feel like I saw a few. Again, one game sample size. All that is a preamble to ask you, Joe. Do you feel like you got an understanding of some things that might be holding Matt Miazga back when it comes to the U.S. national team? I do, yeah. And right. and I think they're things that we've seen before with the U.S. men's national team, right? They're yep. not just isolated incidents for for his club. They're also things we've seen creep over into the international level as well. And so to, so to sort of preempt some of this conversation, I guess, and to pretend like you'd ask me the question you were asking those other USMT folks— I up front, at least going into this game, I, I my explanation was just that Matt Miazga is not 
better than a lot of the other center backs that Greg Berhalter's called in recently. And my understanding coming out of this game has not changed. I still don't think he's above a lot of those folks, but maybe we can talk about why, Taylor. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Because you can always say, like, oh, others are ahead of him. This guy's better. This guy's better. But I like to look at, like, okay, specifically in what way? Are yeah. they better on the ball? Are they better in the air? Are they better when they're stepping or when they're tracking runs? And I think I did see some things in this one, starting with the way Miazga does step. And I think of him as a pretty aggressive ball winner. I think of him, uh, to your point, Joe, as winning stuff in the air, being pretty tall, pretty good in the air. There's the Diego Lenez thing of the the height difference that we've all uh, seen and remember. But when he is sort of sitting off and then having to track a runner when they check two, he tends to be a little bit slower. And I think you can see that same thing as we see with John Brooks sometimes of because he's tall, because he's kind of lanky, I think he gets worried about getting turned easily, and I saw him get turned a couple times in this one. So I think there's a a hesitancy to trying to win that ball to being right on that defender's back and making them uncomfortable. And that's how you force a heavy first touch or a bad pass back, is by letting the, the player who's now receiving the ball know you are right there and they have no time and they have to make a really quick decision. If you let them settle and kind of get comfortable that lets them play the game they want to play, and especially if you let them turn. And once or twice in the second half, he let his opponent turn, and then he's into sort of a foot race 1v1, and I don't think that suits his game. So that was one thing I saw is the sort of, the not lack of aggressiveness, but just maybe the hesitancy in some of that stepping. I I saw the same thing, Taylor. One moment I sent to you is in the 27th minute of this game for Alaves. And yep. Cadiz play a ball out to the left side, their left side, and Miazga's playing as a right center back in a back four in this game. So it's it's Miazga's side. And Miazga goes to close the ball down as it's over on the left touchline, and he gets turned. He gets turned, he gets beaten, and he's forced to foul because he can't keep up at that point. Once he's been pivoted and turned, he, he doesn't have the quickness in moments like that to be able to recover. And really, he shouldn't have been turned in the first place. So there's that moment. Then there's a moment in the 48th minute, which I also believe I sent to you, Taylor. We watched yep. these same mm-hmm. clips, but to, to collaborate a little bit here, he gets beaten on the end line for, for Alaves and sprints into the box to recover and, and looks a little bit shaky and, and a John Brooks-esque, honestly, in his recovery. I like that comparison, Taylor. It's It's moments where he's having to recover and to shift because of his own mistakes a second earlier. And, and both of those things aren't ideal. So I saw, I saw that in his sort of just a little bit reactionary in the defending, but sort of slow in his reactions at the same time. And then I would say also fairly slow on the ball. Joe, is that something you spotted or was that just me? I, I saw a little bit of okay. that, Taylor, but I want, I want to hear more of what you've sure. got to say. So I, I think what, uh, from what we've seen from the U.S. so far, what Berhalter has said, I think he does want his center backs to certainly be good on the ball, capable of playing forward, capable of breaking the lines if need be, and capable of going direct over the top if need be. But I think he also wants them to be able to make decisions quickly, play the ball forward pretty readily, and carry the ball forward if they need to. And Miazga, I had three or four clips uh, pulled where he receives the ball, he has a one-time pass or a two-touch pass to a player who's 20, 30 yards up the field, and they are open. And if he hits it first time, it's not even like he has to thread the needle perfectly. Like, it's a sizable gap. It's maybe a 10-yard gap between two players that he could put that ball through, but he takes a touch, and he takes another touch. And sometimes the defenders close that gap, and he has to go lateral or back to the goalkeepers. Sometimes they don't. But his teammate has to check two and check two because they don't want to just be standing there. And then by the time he does play it, 
the opposition is able to react and, and track that runner, step to that runner. Sometimes they're winning the ball. Sometimes it's a 50-50. Sometimes, uh, Lena, I forget who it was, but sometimes they're able to kind of turn and go. But those were the outliers as opposed to the rule. And I think that when you're looking at how do we kind of keep the ball moving, break down potentially compact defenses if that's who we're playing, or, or sort of find a way through a mid-block if that's what our opponent is doing at, at national team level – the slowness in his ball movement, especially when he was moving it forward, definitely stood out to me from this game. And you can let some of those things slide if you're a plus, plus, plus defender, right? If you're a real asset defensively and you can handle yourself in 1v1 situations defensively, you can handle yourself when you've got a defender, uh, an opposing attacker, excuse me, in front of you and you're trying not to let them turn. But as we've seen from Miazga at club level and international level in the past, like I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily the case. And so when you're not a plus, plus, plus defender in those moments, you, maybe you're good in the air like Miazga is, but you, you lack some of that skill and quickness on the ground to defend. Well, then it's hard to excuse some of the slowness on the ball. Taylor, like you're mentioning, I noted one poor pass, not necessarily one that he took too slowly, but a poor ball in the 90th minute. As Alaves are trying to protect a lead, Miazga gives the ball away in, in their own half, and it's just a sloppy moment from him that creates an opportunity for the opposition. It's moments like that. It's moments like one of the clips you sent me where he's just not seeing the options ahead of him or not brave enough to play the ball there. In a sense, you need someone who can connect those passes if they're not going to be a real asset defensively. And Miazga kind of ended up, at least in this game, in a weird no-man's land where he's not being hugely influential in multiple different phases of play. And so I, I think my conclusion here would be I felt like maybe there was like it was a like, oh, he had an injury and then they wanted him to get situated because he's he's moved to a new club. Or maybe it was like personality things. I just wasn't sure about the on the field performance. And now having watched this game or his moments in this game again, one game, not the largest sample size, but it does have me feeling more comfortable with where he seems to be in the depth chart. So if he's included in the next roster, I won't be shocked. I won't be surprised but I certainly won't be elated either to me that will mean that other people are injured or just Berhalter has seen what he needs to see from certain individuals but I still have it at least for now as John Brooks is the starting left center back it seems like Miles Robinson has earned that starting right center back position Uh, I think we've got Chris Richards in the conversation Walker Zimmerman even Tim Ream I think remains in there and so when you go down that order I think Mark McKenzie has shown to be a a Burhalter guy Uh, I don't know if Matt Miazga cracks that list or if he does I don't think he moves into starting spots or anything like that Agreed. I have him at seventh on that depth chart right now yeah. after Robinson Brooks. This is not in any particular order. Robinson Brooks, Zimmerman, Richards, Ream, and McKenzie. That seems to align with what Burhalter has put out there. And, and even for myself, I don't know that especially Ream and McKenzie bring a whole lot on the field at this point for the U.S. men's national team. But I think I would still take them both over Matt Miazga given some of the deficiencies from Matt Miazga that were on display in this game. All right. So we feel like we have a better understanding of Matt Miazga where he stands with the U.S. national team. What about with Luca De La Torre, Joe? Uh, your future namesake. I've already made that joke once. I'm going to make it again. And then I will not make it again after that. Uh, but we saw him this weekend in a loss for Heracles. Uh, and it was, I think, against Pex Vole, who I believe were bottom of the table. Yeah. Not entirely what you want to see out of that one, Joe. Not a good result for Heracles. Mm-hmm. They gave Pex Vole their first win of the year. Uh, and Zvole are still on the bottom of the table, even after those three points, which gives you an idea of how far behind they were and, and still are to an extent. Luca De La Torre has been an every game starter for Heracles this year, just like he was last year. In this game, he played as half of a double pivot, most often on the right side of, a, of the midfield two in a 4-2-3-1. He shifted over to the left a little bit. 
I came into this game as a fan of Luca De La Torre. I enjoy watching his game and I like the way he plays soccer, even back to that shoot 2017 U20 team and, and maybe even a bit before that with the 17s. He's smooth on the ball. He's got some quality in how he plays. I'm just a sucker for the aesthetic ball mover type of, of midfielder, especially a deep lying midfielder, even though Luca De La Torre tends to, to play more as an eight. I like watching him play Taylor. We saw a lot of his strengths on display in this game. We also saw some of his weaknesses on display. And to be honest, a lot of those things haven't really changed dating back to last season and even during his time with Fulham in, in England. So what would be those things that we're dating back to? What would be those things that we've observed previously for people who haven't heard? Sure. So let's start with strengths because that's just more fun than weaknesses. We can get to yeah. the weaknesses later. There's a, a clip that I tweeted out, and Taylor, I know you saw this too. I tweeted it out last night as I was going through this game for Heracles because I was shocked and I couldn't believe that someone hadn't posted it sooner. I guess we're all just slacking on the, the Heracles footage on USMNT Twitter. But this moment in the 70th minute, Taylor, I have all caps in my notes. Good gracious, what an incredible moment moment on the ball from Luca De La Torre. <laughs> yeah. 70th minute. He controls a bouncing ball. It's coming towards him off of a header from Peck Zuola. The ball's coming towards him in the air. He controls it with his first touch while the ball is still in the air, and he keeps the ball in the air. Then, then he takes another touch to sort of deke around a defender. Then he cushions the ball towards the ground and takes a directional first touch somehow at the same time. So I believe that's his third touch, actually, not, not, his, not his first touch at that point. But then the ball's on the ground. He's bypassed that defender that was running towards him. He's got space to drive into. He drives forward and sees a runner that I don't know how he could have seen, but he sees this runner coming from the left side for Heracles, a diagonal inside-out run from the left into, uh, into, into Luca De La Torre's line of sight at this point, or what I would have thought would have been his line of sight. And De La Torre plays this back line breaking through ball to a teammate. Maybe it could have had a bit more weight on it. Maybe Peck Zola could have defended this sequence better. They almost certainly could have. But what a touch, what a second touch, what a third touch, and what a ball from Luca De La Torre to break this defense open and create a shooting opportunity for a teammate. That's his strength, pulling out little silky moments like this. I hadn't seen the through ball as much from him in the past, but everything leading up to this, he is a ball progressor. He likes to get on the ball. He can dribble. He can drive forward, similar in a way to Yunus Musa, just less powerful and less less quick and, and maybe with slightly slightly more consistent touches at this point in his career because he is an older player than Yunus Musa. But generally, I think they have a similar profile, Taylor, and that was on display a bit in this clip. I really enjoyed that moment and simultaneously didn't enjoy it because from that point on, no matter what he does poorly, and even in the next couple of games, if he does something like has a horrible mistake, I'm still going to think of that sequence and think, but he could do that. <laughs> and he is capable of that. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter pointing out that like, yes, but that's against the bottom of the table club in boo, the Netherlands. Boo. So there is that little bit of a grain of salt, but I think still the control, the dribble, the passing vision while dribbling at speed, and then the ability to pull off that pass, very, very positive. I think also for me, the way he grew into the game, because initially I saw some of the receiving with his back to goal, playing it back to the center back, receiving from the center back, turning, turning back, playing to the center back. And especially when he came under pressure, it was lateral passes. It was backwards passes in the opening 15 minutes or so. And that is a thing I feel like we talked about previously when we watched Luca De La Torre. Also felt like what we've talked about is seeing him take a heavier touch when he turns. Maybe just put that ball a couple yards too far out in front of him. And then even if he is trying to read the, def the defense or even 
even if he does end up being able to make that play, there's still that moment of an aggressive stepping team that might be able to win that ball, might be able to limit what he can do, or as happened a couple times in this game, might force him backwards. And that was sort of framing my understanding of this game. And I want to stress that to then say, to see him grow into it and start to be more fluid on the ball, better in that first touch, receiving on the turn, and even not fully on the turn, but even just sometimes it's that the left back advances, gets the ball in an attacking position, kind of plays it back diagonally to him. He has a defender running at him. He's facing the goal dilatory, and he kind of receives and opens up in the same motion and then plays the ball with his second touch. And that quickness is definitely a thing we need for the U.S. national team. And there's other moments when I felt like he does drop in, gets the ball off a goalkeeper, the center back, but receives on the turn takes it sort of that like knows he has the space to take a touch maybe 10 yards wide either side and then plays a 30-yard ball upfield to a central midfielder or an attacker who has dropped into a space that's been vacated. Again, very reminiscent to what we want to see for the U.S. national team. Will there be more pressure and more physicality when he plays for the U.S.? Probably, but all we can go with is what we've, what we've seen so far. And what I saw on the day was some sloppy moments, some moments that could certainly be tightened up, but reasons for optimism when it comes to Luca De La Torre. I think Luca Taylor Torre is what Greg Baralta has wanted Sebastian Legette to be. Yep. With the U.S. men's national team. And that's that's kind of where I stand right now, at least on this depth chart. We don't need to turn this into a broader conversation about the, the eight spots for the U.S. men's national team. But I don't see a lot of downsides for playing Luca De La Torre in Sebastian Legette's spot on the left side of, of central midfield. I think he brings a lot of similar attributes, but just executes them better and can impact a game in a more meaningful way. I, I enjoy it. Again, I enjoy watching Luca De La Torre, but Taylor, at the same time, you're right. The inconsistent play is there, and it certainly was there in this game. A number of moments where he didn't quite get on the half turn in time and didn't, you know, didn't progress the ball in a sequence, or moments where he's trying a little bit too much and loses the ball. He was a little loose in possession, I thought, in time at times in this yep. game. I noted a number of sequences where that was the case. But at the same time, you do get the really nice beautiful moments on the ball. None as beautiful as that moment in the 70th minute that I tweeted, but there's a sequence in the 52nd minute that I sent you, Taylor, where he's drifting between the lines, he controls the ball that was coming in pretty hot, and gets on the half turn and plays forward. It's a, it's a nice moment from him of ball progression. You like to see that kind of stuff. He doesn't have this incredible defensive motor, he doesn't cover a ton of ground, and that is a deficiency in his game. But if you can get the ball to Luca De La Torre, you can have faith at least a lot of the time that he's going to progress the ball and maybe do something that you didn't expect in a positive way. So I thought this was overall a, a strong performance from De La Torre, even in an unfortunate result for Heracles. And it made me want to see more of him, both with club and with country. Just to like like make sure we're clear, Joe, are, did you feel like you saw him be strong on the ball in terms of carrying it forward? Because I felt like that was a thing I didn't love when I saw him do it seemed like sometimes he would try to take people on would get bodied off or would have that heavy touch once that pressure was applied and it honestly made me wonder with you having just said that he's maybe not the most defensively solid player I saw I felt like we saw him dropping deep to pick the ball up off the center backs I saw him turning under pressure and playing forward it did make me wonder if he could be an option in that number six given the lack of depth we have there he could be. I just I think you run into similar issues in terms of mobility and the back right. line needing to be protected. It's yeah, not like he fair. couldn't that's do fair. that job because he could, right? Anybody can do that job. But you, you run into the same issues that you've had in the past with certain sixes in that role. 
Um, so I think it could work, but maybe not something that Greg Baralta would be looking for right now. Taylor, to go back to the ball progression on the dribble, I think it was mixed. Again, I just get caught up in a lot of the moments. I don't know that this is a bad thing, right? I get I get caught thinking about the moments where he does it well and executes it well because that is such a high-value play, right? Advancing the ball and breaking a line with the dribble or with his passing, that's that's really important. And if, and if I'm you know, Heracles' coach or if I'm Greg Berhalter, I'm willing to take the trade-off in certain cases for De La Torre losing that ball. I'm going to trust the counterpress that we're going to be able to win it back and then play forward if I'm Greg Berhalter. So it's a trade-off, but it's a trade that I'm willing to make with a player like Luca De La Torre. All right. Any other points for De La Torre uh, before we move on? Or I suppose for uh, Matt Miazga either? Luca De La Torre, do more cool stuff that I can tweet. Please and thank you. Uh, I, I know he made his own compilation on Twitter before he got called up to the U.S. men's national team earlier in October, Taylor. He just tweeted out a comp while you were on vacation. I don't know if you if you saw that. Oh, I did not. Um, but either he can just tweet these things out or I can. I guess it doesn't it doesn't really matter, but I'd kind of like to tweet them because it's fun. Um, but do do more cool stuff, Luca. That's my request. All right. My request is that listeners stay with us. We're going to take one more break. We've got two more players to discuss. Uh, but first, a word from today's sponsors. All right, Joe, as I said, two players still to go. Let's start with Sam Vines, who returns from injury. Sam Vines, back in the conversation, sort of. Sort of, right. Uh, (laughs) While he was out with a collarbone injury, Anthony Robinson kind of locked down the left-back spot for the U.S. men's national team, which is good for the U.S., not quite as good for Sam Vines, but at least he is back in the conversation in that he's healthy again. After making the move to Belgium in early August from the Colorado Rapids, Vines had some minutes in the Europa League qualifying stages in in mid to late August, played a league game for Royal Antwerp in Belgium in August as well, and then he fractured his collarbone and missed all of September and missed most of October. But he is back now, Taylor. He played 90 minutes in the Europa League midweek last week against Fenerbahce and then played 90 minutes over the weekend in league play for Antwerp, who are currently third in the league, which is not bad for them. So I think it's encouraging that he's getting back on the field, getting back in the lineup in two pretty important games for Antwerp as they're trying to stay towards the top of the table in the league and progress in the Europa League. These are good signs for a young player like Sam Vines, who is just now getting his footing in Europe. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Matt. Weldon, wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And what did you make of his performance? Uh, maybe not against Fenerbahce, because I'm not sure if you watched that one, uh, but from this past weekend. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, he looked, Taylor, like a player who had just come back from injury. Yeah. There were some good moments. There were some bad moments. Probably more medium mixed moments and bad moments than than great ones from him. He didn't get on the ball a lot at left back in a back four. In, in a back four. He mostly was providing width on that side, although he did do some Robin Fraser Colorado Rapids-esque inverting at times. There's this moment, I didn't send it to you. But this moment in the 63rd minute where he just is playing as a central midfielder all of a sudden in buildup and gets on the ball, looks smooth, plays it out wide. Nice routine sequence, but but still a fun one for me to see a fullback inside. But there were moments where he's just trying to shake the rust off, or at least that's what it seemed to me. He takes too long on the ball and loses it in the 15th minute. And, and this happened a few times, but the 15th minute was maybe the most notable one. He gets it back after taking too long and losing it, and then he loses it again with an underhit back pass. And it's just... Uh, an unfortunate sequence of mistakes from Sam Vines. It doesn't end up costing Antwerp anything in that moment, but still, you you need to be quicker and need to play faster, and that's why I say the rust is still needing to be shaken off a bit, or he's in the process of doing that, because there's moments where it's just a little slow and all the pieces aren't connecting. He mishits a pass and build up in the 55th minute, a pretty routine pass, not the simplest of passes, certainly, but something that you expect him to hit, and, and certainly he has hit in the past. The ball just goes out of bounds in the 55th minute. Too heavy of a touch earlier in the game. I mean, there's there's a number of those kinds of moments where you say ah this isn't this isn't Sam Vines's best but then we get glimpses Taylor of why he has been a pretty highly rated left back prospect for the U.S. men's national team I sent you this moment in the 43rd minute where he gets on the end of a, a switch on the left side from right to left for Antwerp he gets on the end of that ball in the 43rd minute has a defender closing him down he's got a little space but but someone's closing him down a bit and he plays this simple but nice outside of the left foot ball to a teammate who's making a run down the seam, kind of in the half space for Antwerp on the left side. And Vines plays it. He looks calm and collected. He plays that ball. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to anything for Royal Antwerp. But a simple and effective moment from Sam Vines. And you like to see those kinds of plays from a left back. You do. And mostly you just like to see him back playing. Absolutely. Back theoretically in the conversation for the national team. But it does feel like... Uh, at, at least right now, we've got uh, Anthony Robinson in there. Maybe it will be Tim Ream if we go with a back three. Maybe Serginho Dest can slide over, but I don't foresee Sam Vines making the next roster. I don't either. I don't see him factoring in in November. I could, though, Taylor, see him factoring in in, in 2022, right? There's, yep. no, there's no December qualifiers, if I'm remembering correctly. So the next window is after the new year. It's in, it's in the 2022 calendar year. I could see Vines establishing himself, growing into play with Antwerp, continuing to get starts. I could see him factoring in next year because I do think he's a talented player. And I I like him and a lot of what he does better than George Bellow when they're both healthy and active. So I would not be surprised to see Vines establish himself, get more minutes with Antwerp, and leapfrog a couple of players in that left-back depth chart or maybe at least just George Bellow and become a serviceable option at left yeah. back for the U.S. in 2022. I think that's in his bag. I think it's in his wheelhouse. He can do that. Now it's just a matter of how he establishes himself in Belgium. 
All right, we shall see. We'll keep an eye on Sam Vines. We will certainly keep an eye on Weston McKinney, who, Joe, this is controversial, but I think he should start for the U.S. national team. Your thoughts? Oh, Taylor, I'm all aboard that take. What a scolding, <laughs> scalding hot take. Yeah. Not scold. I mean, I guess it could be a scolding take in a, in a way, but yeah, I'm with you. So we both watched uh, the Derby d'Italia for the weekend review. We talked about it with Graham. I don't think either one of us paid that much attention to Weston McKinney or felt like there was much to be discussed from his performance. Were you in that same boat? Uh, I was, but not specifically for McKinney, really. I just thought the game was a yeah, little sluggish, a little slow. And so McKinney was involved more than yep. most of his teammates, um, going yep. back through the numbers and, and the touches. But he didn't have a ton of incredibly meaningful offensive contributions. And when you don't get involved a ton in the attacking half or in the final third, you don't play Luca De La Torre-esque through balls, then maybe you just don't catch the eye enough. There is that, certainly, but maybe also when you're doing as much defensive work as he was doing, it's hard to kind of pay attention to that because I think, especially if you're not specifically watching to just see that one player or to see what like the team you root for is doing, you focus on the ball, you focus on what everyone's doing in given moments. And I wasn't really paying attention to how much ground he was covering. Joe, I sent you uh, three different clips. I wouldn't advise people go find them because they're just defensive clips, but they're worth looking at, in my opinion, because I, I did not realize how much he is being asked to do. Uh, I asked David Amoyal, uh, our, our famed uh, Serie A Calcio correspondent expert, he thinks, uh, I asked him if he was basically doing for Allegri what Vidal did for Allegri and for Conte. His argument was McKinney doesn't have as many defensive responsibilities, but from an attacking standpoint, yes, I took issue with that because I saw him doing the defensive work in this one, and it was... A lot of aggressive running, like we've come to expect from him, but also little like permutations that I think are interesting in what he has to kind of process in the moment. A good example of that would be, from a basic standpoint, Inter in a back three, more of a 3-5-2, so they have the back three, then they have a three-man central midfield. Juve playing more of a 4-4-2 in this game, meaning that there is an overload central. I think they they tried to work on that by having Kulisevsky drop in or having that kind of uh, the midfield four stay pretty tight. But every single time the ball would go to Bastoni, uh, Inter's left center back, who I think is the most lethal for them when it comes to long-range passing, McKinney would close a good 30-yard gap immediately. And oftentimes it wasn't the ball goes to Bastoni and then McKinney's on that run. It would usually be the ball goes to DeVry or Skriniar, and they're sort of receiving and turning to start to play the ball, and McKinney is already sprinting to Bastoni. And if he's a second or two late... There's way too much time, and even then, if he's a second or two late, he's vacated space in the middle that can easily be passed into or passed around, and suddenly Juve are at a massive disadvantage. And I thought the way he timed that defensive running was excellent, but then as the game goes on, the way he tracks runs, steps to runs, wins balls, if he doesn't win the ball, he tracks the runner after it and then makes an interception. That was one of the clips I sent you, Joe. I I don't know why I'm so impressed by this because it's all kind of things we've come to expect from Weston McKinney, hard running, getting a, like into physical battles, winning those physical ba- battles, making smart passes, but... I just thought maybe because it's such a huge game for Inter, such a historically important game, to see him not stand out in a bad way was a positive thing for me for sure. Absolutely. And and it's just good to see Weston McKinney playing in a game yeah. like this, right? Because it wasn't so long ago after the September window for True. the U.S. Men's National Team where we were pretty down on him, and, and understandably so, right? Things weren't going well for club. Things weren't really going well for him on a personal level with country either. 
And so seeing him get back in October and play and impact games, not not in a flawless way at all, really. There were a lot of mistakes in that game against Costa Rica, especially. But he was a, he was an impact player in that game, Taylor. The U.S. men's national team really relied on him in that game. Then bringing some of that momentum and continuing his season with Juve, getting on the field in a game like this, I think is is great. And so you have that part, first of all. And then you do have a lot of the defensive contributions that he made. Taylor, you mentioned, you know, people don't really need to go out and watch these clips. And, and you're right, they don't. But Wes McKinney somehow makes de- defending fun and makes watching him fun. If, if if you can take some semblance of joy in that, like I think we can, he's moving out there, man. He is covering yeah, a he lot is. of ground. And what's more is he's not just running for running's sake. He's running and closing off passing angles as he goes. And Taylor, you kind of mentioned this. He's he's taking some nice pursuit angles. He's closing off runners behind him for Inter so that Inter's back three can't play the ball into those particular players. It's not just running. It's smart running. And he's not doing that every time. There's still room to improve in that regard. But that, I think, is a point of development in Weston McKinney's game dating back to 2019, right? That was the Gold Cup final where the U.S. lost to Mexico and, and McKinney was playing as part of a double pivot in that game, I believe, next to Michael Bradley. And he didn't track a runner. He wasn't involved as much as he needed to be defensively, or maybe he was involved too much on the goal that Mexico scored to give him that 1-0 win back in the summer of 2019. We can chart some real progress from then to now in Weston McKinney's ability to impact a game defensively and harness his clear physical attributes with an understanding of where and when he needs to move. And where and when his teammates need to move, because that was the final point that I was really interested in or very much enjoyed was seeing those times that he would step, that he would apply that aggressive pressure. Sometimes everybody moved with him and he just kind of continued on. And it was that quick check. Okay, everybody's where they need to be. And then he would press forward. Other times he would check and realize, oh, someone hasn't closed that gap. Someone hasn't filled in on the opposite side. So there is an open pass. And then he would occasionally just drop back as he needed to to make sure that they kind of had their their defensive lines covered. But also there were other times when he would turn and yell at different players what they needed to be doing. And to see an American bossing a midfield, like literally telling people what to do for Juventus, is just a continuously surreal thing to see having been very excited when it was like oh Sasha Kleshton is playing for Anderlecht this weekend yay there's an American doing something in Europe it's it's a it's a big difference no shots at Sasha Kleshton he of the famed mustache but Joe to guys bring it full circle to your point how many Americans we have doing meaningful things in Europe is never not exciting to me and Weston McKinney like like yelling at his Juve teammates to do things because they weren't doing them means that he understands the system. He understands what he's being asked to do for a world-class manager and a world-class club. Uh, very, very happy making for me. Agreed. Yeah. And, and with how Allegri likes to play or certainly how he's molded Juve this season, I talked about this on yesterday's show and we can review He's turned them into a much more defensive team, and he's also turned them into a less effective team, at least right now, in terms of creating chances and, and stopping opposing teams from creating chances. Juve's not at the level where they were last year under Pirlo, but this at the same time, they're defending a lot more than they did last year, and that could really suit Weston McKinney's skill set because he is this really mobile guy, and if he can combine and continue to combine his running with his his brain and really figure out where and when he needs to move those things could turn into real assets for Allegri and have McKinney be a a really important part of this team, like he was at times last year under Pirlo, just in a different system. So I'm very curious to see where this season takes Weston McKinney and how involved he really becomes for U of A, because it feels like the stars could align with him being a pivotal player for them. 
All right, Joe. Well, I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about things, uh, especially when it comes to the U.S. national team. Uh, but we'll see if that continues for the rest of the week because we're going to be doing listener questions tomorrow with Graham. Then Thursday, uh, it's scheduled. Let's, let's hope it continues. I don't want to jinx it, but we plan to do another crossover with Scuffed. Lots of your U.S. national team questions answered ahead of the, the roster for those upcoming World Cup qualifiers. There's some big World Cup qualifiers, Joe. They're kind of important, so I hope we get it right. We're going to be talking all those things out. Lister questions tomorrow with Graham. We'll talk about some other stuff there, too, but less meaningful because it won't directly impact (laughs) World Cup qualifying because obviously our conversation impacts World Cup qualifying. Right. Uh, right. That's how it works. For now, Joe Lowry, any other bits of business before we call it quits for the day? I don't think so, Taylor. All right. Well, the many Americans we talked about, uh, congratulations, even if you didn't have a good weekend. Uh, The many Americans we did not, apologies. We'll talk about you next time. Joe Lowry, thank you. Excuse me, Joe De La Lowry, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, you got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for sticking with us, even as I made the same joke like seven times. (laughs) We very much appreciate it, and we'll talk to you very soon.